Don't worry about walking a mile in my shoes. Just try a day thinking in my head. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, (laughs) shit shows. I couldn't help myself. I know we really should not make this a thing. Um, What's worse? I mean, howdy ho, ahoy, ahoy and like a full on pirate accent. I feel like ahoy is kind of okay. If I just say it (laughs) in a normal person voice. Um, But we probably shouldn't make it a thing. Hello, new people. Are you still here? I I don't blame you if if you've turned this shit off. Uh, Welcome. Uh, If you are new from TikTok, hello. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Here we go. (laughs) Um, Guys, I had a TikTok video do well last week in my standards. And it was one that was promoting me in the podcast. So that's always good. I feel like the ones that do well are typically topical and not necessarily promoting me. So welcome to all you new shit shows. We are so happy to have you here. So today we are diving deep with Dr. Kirk Honda. He is the face, the voice behind the YouTube channel and the podcast psychology in Seattle. So in case you couldn't pick up on it, he's a psychologist in Seattle. And so this conversation was so very fun for me. So I hope that it's going to be so very fun for y'all to listen to. It's really giving. This really has something for everyone in it. Repressed memories. So this is something that's been coming up It came up in Shit Show Saturday with Alice. It's been a topic that's come up in some of the Patreon groups recently. We talk about something called pro-dependency. We talk about the difference between borderline and complex PTSD. We talk about mental health and social media. Um, And then at the very, very end, we get into the... Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case. So that's how I discovered Dr. Honda was, as many of you know, um, I was addicted to that trial. I like literally watched every single minute of it. I know that he's just done hours and hours and hours on this trial. And so I didn't want to bring it up because I assumed that he is sick of talking about it. But then a little door opened at the very end of our conversation. And boy, was I a happy girl. (laughs) So yeah, uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. But first, a few things. Number one, I want to give a shout out to all of my newest shit show Patreon members. Hey, you TikTok people that just found the podcast last week. I have a support community. And this is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. And this is where really cool people hang out, really cool shit shows hang out, get raw, get vulnerable, make friends, laugh, feel seen, feel heard, feel understood. So do what these damn people did and join the damn the join Patreon, I mean. So thank you, thank you, thank you too. Andrea, I'm really hoping it's Andrea. If it's Andrea, 
we're going to go with Andrea. <laughs> uh, Noelle, Lori, Dorothy, Joy, Ray, Brittany, Stephanie, Haley, Maureen, Vicky, Karen, Carrie, Jess, Kim, Angela, Heather, Sarah. Thank you, shit shows. You guys are fab. Everybody else, don't you want to hear your name next week? Patreon.com slash adult child. Do it now. Also, if you could please give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at adult child pod. Next, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. If you're new here, that's what we do here. Do it now. You can multitask. You can give me a five-star rating while listening to the podcast. And then lastly, just want to give a shout out to uh, this month's sponsor, Integrative Life Center. So this is a group of treatment centers that focus on addiction, intimacy disorders. They have locations in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Colorado. They really focus on getting at the underlying core trauma. So go check out the show notes for links to their website, email address, and a phone number. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. Well, it is my pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Kirk Honda. He has the YouTube channel and the podcast Psychology in Seattle. And I came across you through through Legal Bites. So I got sucked down law tube as a result of the Depp Heard trial, like so many other people. Yeah. Um, and I have been Diving deep in your channel since then, you talk about all of the trash TV that I love to watch. So welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. How would you describe your channel and your podcast? Well, I've been at it for 14 years. I'm a professor and therapist for 25 years. Did you start when you were like six years old? <laughs> I'm 51. <laughs> I'm 51 years old. I started when I was 27-ish. And when... I started the podcast. I didn't really know what I was doing in 2008, but over the past 14 years, we really do lots of topics. I put out 20 episodes a week. So there's lots of different things that we'll talk. I'll get into serious psychological things, very clinical research-based topics. And I'll also, as you say, react to reality TV. The reason why I found myself doing that was because I have been experimenting with various different things podcast wise. And when I started doing reality TV as one of my experiments, I found a lot of people were actually watching. And the benefit to that is that I can provide what I believe to be helpful information that I would normally only be able to give my clients or my students, but I can actually share it with a lot of people. And because uh, people will Google you know, bachelor or 90 day fiance, and then they find the channel and then they can also, they can enjoy reality TV or trash TV, as you said earlier, and <laughs> uh, maybe learn how to take care of themselves and other people. Do you enjoy it watching I those do. shows? <clears throat> Were you watching prior to, okay, let's no. be honest. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was one of those people who never watched reality TV. Didn't even cross my mind. I didn't understand why anyone would watch it, honestly. But as I started getting into it, I absolutely can appreciate it. It's a, it's like getting into a form of music or something. The first time you hear jazz or 
I don't know, some other kind of music that you're not familiar with, it all sounds like garbage or, you know, it all sounds the same or you don't understand the appreciation. But once you start getting into it, you can kind of appreciate the the nuances to it. You know, there's problems for sure. But um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm learning to enjoy it. What show do you enjoy watching the most? Well, the one I enjoy the most is Couple Therapy on Showtime. Uh-huh. Because that one is right up my alley as a therapist and it provides this uh it's it's a it's a very easy thing for me to comment on and and to provide my own thoughts about uh but yeah um other shows really any show that provides a conflict or attachment indications shows like um too hot to handle th- those kinds of shows i don't it's just more about the salaciousness mm-hmm. and which is fine but it doesn't give me anything to grab onto in terms of commenting. And so I tend not to like those kinds of shows. Bachelor, Bachelorette also is, is similar in that way. Cause I agree more of a competition, not necessarily a real relationship. It's, yeah. It's a lot. I mean, I like 90 day fiance, like love after lockup. I love, I'm like a Bravo whore, but bachelor, I mean, granted, I know that all of those shows are somewhat, you know, staged or narratives are pushed, but I feel like, bachelor and bachelorette the the fakeness is like kind of a little bit next level compared to 90 day and and like housewives yeah exactly love after lockup absolutely yeah yeah so i get really offended when people are condescending to those (laughs) watch reality tv like we're not intelligent um i just think it's fascinating you know yeah yeah i mean it's a and I didn't realize this and I might've been one of those people in the past. It sounds like, it sounds like you were, I might, (laughs) I would hope I wouldn't be judgy about it, but I might have been at least internally. And I think what it does and every show is different, but I, I, we all are really on a daily basis struggling with attachments. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some days more so than others, some days more noticeable than others, but we're all, wanting to be close, wanting to be understood, wanting loyalty, security, dedication, wanting to feel like we're okay, wanting fulfillment, wanting entertainment, enjoyment, connection, really understanding each other. And these shows really play in that space. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's like my fix. One of the one of the traits of adult children is we become addicted to excitement. And that's how I, I watch it. I'm like, let's go, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have a lot of different things that I want to dive into. The first is, and this is the first video that I saw you on with um, Alita was you were discussing repressed memories and specifically related to the the Manson stuff. And I guess a little bit depth you heard. So most of my listen, most of the people listening are, you know, have endured complex trauma and are suffering from complex PTSD. And it's something that comes up a lot. You know, a lot of people have large gaps in their memories, or they don't, you know, remember their childhood, or they have memories that come to the surface. And so would love to kind of dig into that with you some. So the first question would be, should somebody be trying to open up Pandora's box or is it just best to just let things come to the surface naturally? Yeah, it's a good question. It depends on what's below the surface and the amount of PTSD and the amount of treatment, the amount of self-awareness, emotional regulation support. It's a bit of a 
risk, not a bit, it's a huge risk for people to dive into their trauma narratives and awareness of memories without it, if they have PTSD. Well, so, so much to say. Okay. Um, well, let's say you have someone who knows they've been through some stuff, but they also know that they haven't really concentrated on recalling specific events and they tend to avoid it because they just always have done that or they're scared. What was that? They're scared. Yeah. They're scared of what it would mean if they did remember it or, you know, cause there's a lot of implications. If you pull up those memories, it might compel you to confront your parents and maybe you want to preserve some connection with them or it would cause waves or whatever. So there's a lot of consequences, but I think most important is that, and I didn't know this when I was first starting out in my career, it took me a while to figure this out, kind of learn the hard way, unfortunately, is that when people have trauma and ongoing complex trauma, a lot of them will develop PTSD, which is a neurological condition. It's not like something you just decide upon. It's something that actually changes the way the brain is oriented. And the brain has learned to not go to anything that will remind them of the trauma, because when that happens, they have a, a, a severe spike in distress mm -hmm. and panic. And this is essentially the central feature of PTSD. And so when people are in the very beginning stages of awareness and they are wondering, should I start to go down this road? You really should be talking with a trauma specialist because there's a chance you could actually hurt yourself mm -hmm. by diving into even just the first layer of memories. And you could trigger a massive dissociative PTSD depressive, anxious reaction that could harm you. So what I do with people is we will experiment with tiny little bits of like one of the things that I do with people to kind of assess this is, well, one, I assess for PTSD. And then if that's present, then I would say, okay, what does it feel like to think about thinking about remembering the memories, you know, like really distance yourself, like don't remember the memories, but what does it feel like to think about possibly in the future thinking about the memories for people that have a legit uh, a PTSD that's at risk of being triggered? Just that question alone will cause them massive amounts of distress because the brain has learned to distance itself. Whereas other people that don't really have that sensitivity or that risk, they'll say like, well, it's not, I'm not excited to remember those things, but, but you know, I, I'm up for it. And I'll ask, you know, do you feel any distress in your body and your torso right now? And they'll say like, well, no, not, it's more just like sadness, I guess. So it, it requires a lot of emotional awareness, a lot of exploration, um, a lot of tailored treatment with people. So it, you know, it can be very delicate and it can take years. with people. I guess it's kind of similar in the sense as it relates to EMDR, if you're using that to look at, childhood stuff, the preparatory work required before you actually start the EMDR, you know, that, that requires a lot more, you know, preparatory work and, you know, getting coping schools skills, or if not, it could really backfire. Mm -hmm. Right. hundred percent. So EMDR is one, it is but one form of mm -hmm. trauma treatment. We have mm -hmm. CBT and prolonged exposure, general prolonged exposure. That's what I use. 
And the key is that everyone is at a different point when they embark on the path to recovering from PTSD. Some people are ready and able to go into their trauma narratives, either through EMDR or through verbally discussing them and CPT and prolonged exposure. And some people are far from ready. It could take them. I've worked with people who I work on the prep, that preparatory phase you're referring to for five to 10 years because their life is so out of control. The amount of PTSD reactivity is so severe. The risk of harming themselves to go into the narratives is, is so high. Uh, some people don't, because of their traumas, they don't even know their emotions because a big part of knowing whether or not you're okay to go into your trauma narratives, either internally or externally, meaning you think about it, EMDR, you say it out loud and prolonged exposure, is being able to report to me, the trauma specialist, are you feeling distress? Well, some people, they don't even know what feelings they're feeling because mm -hmm. they were never allowed to have their feelings growing up. And so we have to start from the fundamentals, like let's actually work for five years on getting you connected with your body, your torso, your emotions, your needs, so that you can even answer the question, how are you feeling when you think about talking about your trauma narratives? So other than looking for kind of the right answer when you're asking, how do you feel about talking about trauma or, you know, looking at this stuff, what would be some other key indicators that would show you that somebody's really ready to dive into it more deeply? If they have already talked about it in the past or journaled about it or something, and it didn't uh, totally, uh, they didn't totally spin out. Yeah. It didn't moderately to severely ruin their life for a week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you explain the difference of what the hell's going on in the brain? So I obviously have complex PTSD. So I have these unprocessed emotions or memories that are being stored in my limbic system. What is the difference between that and uh, a, a repressed memory as it relates to the brain? Or is there not a difference? Yeah, it's a really complicated question. A good question. One that we're still trying to refine in terms because we don't really have a, a refined ability to measure what the brain is doing we're it's like we're looking at the earth from a million miles away and we're like well i can kind of see maybe an ocean there you know we're not we can't get on the ground in terms of the brain because it's too complicated um one day prop after we're dead probably we'll be able to do that but but generally speaking what i can say is that memory, we tend to think of memory as a binary. It's like you either remember it or you don't, mm -hmm. but that's really not how memory is. And we also tend to think about memories as fixed. Like when something happens, we quote unquote record a memory and then it just becomes that memory. But what memory is, is a set of associations. And every time we recall it, we pull together dozens of associations to reconstruct the the memory and the narrative that we can speak. Mm. And then as we're speaking it, we might, we're probably dis distorting it to some extent. And we're remembering the fact every time we remember, every time we recall something, we're recording it again. So memories are really quite um, malleable in that way. But to address what you're saying is that when people have 
acknowledge like, well, I know I've been through a lot of stuff. And I also know that I don't want to remember. So we have to define repressed memory. So for some people, they will use this very rigid definition, which is the kind of classical Freudian definition, but even Freud didn't really use it in this way, but it's sort of the way it's understood as classical Freudian is that you go through a difficult experience and your brain subconsciously you know, pushes the memory underneath your conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. And then through psychoanalysis, it can, you know, be, it can be unearthed and then you can have catharsis and recover in that way. And certainly that can happen. You know, certainly there are documented cases where that can happen, but another form, which is more common really, which is, I think what you're referring to is, well, let me ask you. So, and I, you know, let's not do this right now, but say you were to really concentrate and kind of walk down memory lane in your mind, say it out loud. And might you find memories at the end of say, you know, five, 10 hours of exploration while you're talking out loud, might you find memories? You're like, Oh, I've totally forgot about that. Or that one detail, you know, might that happen to you? Yeah. But I, but I was more so talking about people that literally they have, it's completely repressed like they have no memory of it at all it's kind of what i meant more so okay well yeah so again we have to even define that because one example is you have say a 13 year old that goes through a traumatic sexual abuse experience mm -hmm. and they while it's happening are not really even trying to pay attention to what's happening because they're powerless and, and they don't want to mm -hmm. They're just trying to check out. It's like, well, yeah, they disassociate or they, yeah, go into. Yeah. Whether it's full-blown pathological dissociation or just like trying to just get through it, you know, there's different forms of it, but, and then right afterwards, they don't want to think about it. Mm -hmm. And they also don't have anyone to talk to mm -hmm. about it with because no one, because they don't think anyone will hear them or something. And so day one after the event to the time they are thinking about this at age 35, they've never thought about it. They've never recalled it. They've never, it just has never, every time something hinted at it, they instantly like pushed it away. So if you ask them, have you, were you assaulted when you were 13? They would say, no, I'd say, you know, are you sure? Do you have any memories of that? They'd say, no, they would have, they would have no memory, no access to that memory because memory, you know, the fact there, there's so many things that happened to us when we were 13, right? There's like a billion little moments that happened to us. when we were Why do we remember like the, the 30 things that happened to us when we were 13? Well, it's because we recalled them later. We saw a picture, we told a story, something happened later. Like, remember that time when that, or you remember, oh, I remember, I remember that teacher. When we recall it, it solidifies the memory so that we can have better access to it later. If you never consciously recall something after an event, even if it's a big deal, like being assaulted, your ready access to that memory is actually extremely limited. You might actually never be able to have access to it. But if you start going down a road where you start thinking, well, I do remember being kind of distressed. And then say, I asked a question like, well, do you think you might've been assaulted at some point in your life? You know, with might that have happened? And I have to be careful because I can't, you know, there are risks of inserting memories, which is a mm -hmm. whole other thing with repressed memories. Yes. Yes. Um, but if I avoid the, 
pitfalls of inserting memories and just mm-hmm. uh, there's a, there's a way to do that. Then the person might go, well, I do kind of remember something happening, but I also remember like, I didn't want to really think about it. And, you know, I don't know if I want to think about it right now. You know, they might have that reaction. Like, uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure something happened when I was 13 now that I think about it, but I don't want to think about it because they, you know, they have so much distress. So, so that's one form, but there's, you know, probably 50 other profiles I could tell you that, that one might call repressed memory, but isn't the, the, I don't know, the doesn't adhere to the rigid definition that people often attack because that's what's happening. People say there's no such thing as repressed memories. And it's like, well, what do we mean by repressed memory exactly? Okay. I want to shift a little bit. So I just, I forgot about this. So I, I received this email from a, like a scathing email from a listener back in April. And she was not happy that I said the codependent um, also needs to look at their part. She mentioned this thing. It's a new book. I guess it's a new movement. Are you familiar with pro-dependence? Have you heard of this? Yes. Thoughts? Well, I did a bit of an episode about it, but I'm forgetting the the premise. Can you remind me? The pre- let me read it. Let me let me pull it up and read it. Okay. Pro-dependence is a new concept in addiction health care. It is intended to improve the ways we treat loved ones of addicts or other troubled people, offering them more dignity for their suffering than blame for the problem. Uh, it says, with this, its attachment-focused view, pro-dependence pushes aside the flaws of the codependency model, which generally suggests that family members of addicts need to detach with love, and if they don't, Neither the family member nor the addict will change or grow. That typically leaves loved ones of addicts feeling confused and misunderstood rather than supported and validated. Prodependence approaches the matter differently, choosing to celebrate and value a caregiving loved one's willingness to support and stay connected with an addicted family member while promoting healing for the entire family. Yeah, good. Thanks for reminding me. Um, So- uh, where do I begin? So I feel like off, it's making some assumptions that are not accurate. Right. It's it's a bit of a straw man that yes. props up the discussion of codependency as somehow always saying you have to detach or if you don't in a certain way, you're, you're pathological and you're playing. And certainly there are people who will say that. They'll say like, if you're still living or involved with your spouse who is in the throes of addiction you're inherently codependently enabling the individual, which is, you know, just a massive oversimplification. Addiction, relationships, recovery is eternally complicated, but as humans, we love to reduce things to very simple, you know, axioms, which is problematic. So um, very briefly, what I'll say is that the word codependent in our culture has become essentially it means two different things when people are referring to it as one is the traditional term of codependency, which is that you are the co-pilot in a chemical dependency. You are the codependent, meaning that mm-hmm. you are alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. Co-alcoholic. You are the person, but even further, more research and conceptualization has defined codependency as the desire to take care of someone with a problem. You're essentially like an over-functioner 
And without that role, you feel like you're nothing. Your entire self-esteem is based on finding someone with a massive ongoing problem and being entwined and enmeshed with that problem and almost needing that problem to exist. That That's codependency mm-hmm. in a nutshell. But people are using the word codependency to refer to dependency or dependent personality or overdependency, which is actually the complete opposite to some extent of codependency. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be like, mm-hmm. oh my God, those two people spend all their time together. They're codependent. It's like, no, y- y- what you mean is overly dependent. And even then it's probably not even true. So that's one thing. Um, in terms of pro-dependency, yeah, I mean, certainly if someone has a loved one who is going through a problem, an addiction of some sort, and they're getting this very rigid advice, like you have to detach, you have to distance yourself from them, and that's the only way to be a good partner, then yeah, I could see how the pro-dependency movement would crop up, but the way it's described, at least in that little brief, it could be misunderstood to mean that somehow the advice or the approach to lovingly detached is somehow never the right thing to do. You're a very cutthroat. I mean, let's be honest, people, for people to detach with love, they've suffered quite a bit. You know what I mean? Like that's not something that something that people do unless they're in a shit, they've experienced a shitload of pain. Yeah. Usually people wait way too long exactly. to do it. Um, it. It's not usually the first thing that, or that even the hundredth thing that someone will try. It's usually a very, very last resort. Yeah. And even then it'll take them 10 times to actually achieve it because it's so hard. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, there's a lot of dogma around codependency treatment Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, experts and even people in Al-Anon, in my experience, are are nuanced and not rigid about those kinds of things. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I just I just it rubbed me the wrong way because I just feel like he's kind of uh presenting certain things in a light that's not true. I'm sure that there are certain people that feel that way, but like I don't know. I don't really think that, that that's not what's if you read codependent no more, if you you know, an Al-Anon book, like that's yeah. not the gist. Yeah. And it could also play into the codependence problem, right? It's like it's like telling someone that probably should be aspiring for abstinence that what the hell is wrong with you? You should be able to stay in this and like be okay. Right. Right. Yeah. And and it's like maybe it gives them an excuse, you know, they're looking for an excuse to avoid actually doing the hard work that it requires to recover. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like making them a martyr a bit. I don't know. It just rubs me the wrong way. Um, Because I think the, the vast majority of I think more people are suffering I'm sure there are some people that maybe are detaching with love too soon, but I think the more people are suffering from from yeah. sticking around. <laughs> Not I've never detaching. met someone. I've never met someone who detached too soon <laughs> or, even, or even on time. I've never met that person. Okay. Next question. Another thing. So when we talk about borderline versus complex PTSD, one time I Googled it, I was going to make a video about it for like TikTok or Instagram. And a few of the articles I read were saying that the difference is, is that people with borderline 
have a much greater fear of abandonment than people with complex PTSD. And that also sounded like bullshit to me. How would you say the difference is? What, what would you say the difference is? Um, well, it depends on the definition, you know, because when we're talking about things like the difference between oxygen and nitrogen, these are discrete concrete (laughs) (laughs) chemical realities that you can actually answer the question to. But when we're trying to determine the difference between PTSD, complex PTSD and borderline and what, uh, distinctly, um, is different about them in your opinion, it depends on, well, I, I don't really care because when I treat people, I don't really care what label we apply to it. It's more, even if I do solidly determine they have one of these things, everyone who has one of these things is different. So it, yeah. it doesn't really matter to me if someone wanted to say, well, I have complex PTSD because online I read this and that, like, I don't argue with them. I don't care because it doesn't mm-hmm, matter mm-hmm. as long as we're working on what they want to work on and helping them recover. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what we call it. So, but the consensus, at least that's emerging in the literature, I think is that PTSD, complex PTSD and borderline are all on a spectrum that uh, there's a set of symptoms that are, you know, everyone with complex PTSD, people with complex PTSD tend to have all the symptoms of PTSD plus a few more symptoms. And people with borderline have all the symptoms of complex PTSD plus some additional symptoms. So from my memory in the literature, what they're saying as a difference between borderline and complex PTSD is that with borderline there's more, if I remember right, more emptiness feelings, more demoralization. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. But really, if people argue about this sort of stuff online, I'm like, just move forward and get the help you need. Don't don't worry about what it's called. Unless you're a researcher and you're in the weeds about making these distinctions or you're developing the DSM definition criteria for complex PTSD, like it's, it's irrelevant to one's life as to what you call it, because, you know, say you take two people, both have been through a lot growing up and both have a lot of abandonment traumas, a lot of worries of, of being harmed by others. They don't trust other people, but they're desperate for closeness from others. And one person's like, I totally have borderline because when I read online, it feels right to me. And the other person's like, I totally have complex PTSD because when, when I read online, it sounds it sounds like me. The treatment is the same. There, there's no difference in treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, it's the same. Um, now, if you go online, they'll say it's really quite different. But to the experts, the treatment is the same. You want to help people to recover from the traumas that they went through. Um, abandonment traumas can be really, uh, you know, life affecting. And when you recover from them and you also work on your schemas that you developed as a result, then, and you go through a lot of corrective experiences with, you know, secure attachments, then things tend to get better. Now, some people with borderline will not have classic or at least high levels of presentations of what we might call PTSD reactivity of distress. Like emotional flashbacks, trauma responses. 
yes. Um, also, they tend to me they tend to be just kind of constantly moderately distressed rather okay. than having massive spikes. Mm-hmm. Some people with borderline will have very classic complex PTSD reactivity when they're triggered. They'll just have a huge spike in distress and might even dissociate as well. So like I said, it it just depends on the individual and every client should be taken as an individual and the therapist should tailor the treatment to that individual, regardless of what label they're using. Well, I think my concern would be, I mean, you know your shit, but let's be honest. There's a lot of therapists out there who don't. Like so many of us sat in therapy for years without our therapist being able to pick up on that this is childhood related, you know, that this is unresolved childhood shit. And so I guess my concern would be is if, if we're misdiagnosing people with borderline and therapists view that as a personality disorder, that is always going to be there. You know, that, I guess that's kind of my concern there is um, that people aren't getting better. Yeah. Um, well, one, borderline is not forever necessarily. Research has shown that. Uh, so, yes, the problem is there. Many therapists do not know what they're doing. Um, Don't even know about that. I had a friend that had uh, got a, a therapist, never had even heard of ACEs. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, there uh, are a lot of things to cover in graduate mm-hmm. school and continuing yeah. it. And the problem is, is that therapists don't know what they don't know. You go to a foot mm-hmm. doctor, the foot doctor will say, well, I'm not a dentist. So if you ask me a question about your teeth, I'm, I, I don't, I could maybe take a stab at it, but you probably shouldn't talk to me. Whereas therapists are generally taught or given the model that they're supposed to be able to do everything. And it, it unless you really dedicate your life to learning all the topics, you essentially become a dentist and a foot doctor and a cardiologist, then you probably should get to know what you don't know and realize that you shouldn't be talking about stuff. You don't know what you're saying. And so it's a, it's a, not a, it's a, it's a problem for sure. But that's why I say when people are wanting proper treatment for trauma, that they should find a specialist Mm -hmm. and quiz them beforehand. Just be like, so prove to me that you're an actual specialist. Cause some people advertise themselves as trauma specialists, but they have really, no sophistication about how to treat people. So you would want to, you have to do your own homework to at least get a primer on what a therapist, at least in the area of what they should be saying that could prove to you that they actually are an expert. Having said that, even if you search your community for six months, you might not even find someone that has Mm -hmm. an open spot in that category, which is a whole other problem. So exactly. I'm not saying it's easy. uh, No, it seems impossible from what I'm hearing. (laughs) It's not impossible. I mean, there's, there are, if you keep looking, that'll raise your chances of finding that person. Um, But I understand the frustration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And obviously this could just be like my bias and just based off, you know, the top subject matter that I cover, but it just seems to me. And in my opinion, that's so much, of our shit is rooted in childhood that it really should be something that's really covered in, in, in like adverse childhood experiences. I feel like that is something that every damn, I understand that, you know, a podiatrist can't be a plastic surgeon, but I mean, to me, it just seems like that subject matter is so damn important for anybody to know. 
<laughs> yes, but you'd be surprised how many other critical topics mm-hmm. are also on the list. But um, and you have some people that just don't think that that topic is actually important. You know, there's a whole there's whole schools of thought that say that talking about the past is completely useless. In fact, it's it's problem oriented thinking. It's it's this old you know throwback to stupid Freudian. rumination. Yeah, and um, that isn't rational or scientifically based. But you know, there there are certain. I guess you could say religious movements ish, you know what I mean? Like uh, charismatic people will emerge and pull everyone towards them. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's a troubling landscape. How important is it that the therapist has done their own work on their own shit? Extremely. Um, and any therapist that avoids that is irresponsible in a whole variety of ways. Yeah every good therapist I know is in therapy half their lives, even if there's not any pressing matter, you know, I've been through many years of therapy and, um, but it's not just therapy. It's really an ongoing commitment to self-awareness around your own issues, counter-transference, your own growth, um, and how you operate your own reactivity. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and that's been known, since Freud's time, Freud actually introduced that idea of counter-transference and making sure that you're not harming your patients through your own issues. That's been well-known for a long time, but some people avoid it for sure. So a question that I typically ask therapists is, you know, what would be good probing questions to ask a therapist? And one that I've heard from others is, you know, asking a therapist, what is your healing journey look like? If a prospective client asked you that question, how would you answer that? If a prospective client asked me, what is your personal healing journey looked like? My personal healing journey, I'd say, well, uh, how much time do you have? Because um, (laughs) it started when I was a teenager, really, of just introspection, talking, journaling. And then when I became, came a th- and then I went to therapy in college because I just felt like I needed to get some things off my chest and my d-bag friends were terrible listeners so at 19 and so shocking then yeah then I became a therapist and entered therapy intensively for many years and also many of the courses I took were involving explorations of my own issues, my childhood, my family, my parents' childhood. Mm-hmm. And I set out to understand my romantic attachments better and conflict. And that has been ongoing since that time. I set out to understand my own reactivity, the darkest, shamefulest corners of my own personality, uh, really wrestling with that, not not entirely being successful most of the time, but, um, and yeah, and that's just my twenties and I'm, I'm 51 now. So, you know, it's, it's been ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I want to shift gears a little bit to, so, well, let me ask you if, if, if a therapist said that to you, what would you think? I think that's good. I think that the, I think for somebody like me, who's trying to work on their childhood shit. I mean, the fact that you kind of brought that stuff up and say, saying that you've looked at, you know, your parents' own childhood, I think that that would be a, 
a green flag. Mm. So, yeah, it's, I feel so fucking lucky that I found my therapist. <laughs> she saved my life, but I just Googled, I Googled adult children of alcoholic therapist. And there's this woman, Stephanie Brown. She's kind of one of the pioneers of the movement. And it's somebody that works under her. Um, that woman saved my life, you know? Mm. Yeah. I mean, for years, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. Like what you were talking about, how when you have a, when you have PTSD and you go into, you know, a flashback, like for years, I just thought I was absolutely pathetic for the way that I acted in romantic relationships mm -hmm. and just uh, me being just completely hijacked. Like, yeah. I just thought I was fucking pathetic, you yeah. know? And it was just such a relief to learn that I wasn't inherently flawed, mm -hmm. <laughs> that I had yeah. trauma and that solution was possible, you know? So that's why I get so pumped when somebody finds my podcast and they too have spent years not being able to figure out what the fuck is wrong with them. You know, most people will be like, oh, that's a good thing to find out that you have complex trauma, but it truly is because <laughs> that's when mm -hmm. healing becomes a possibility. You can't change shit if you don't know what's wrong with you. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit to like social media, like pop culture stuff. I've, I saw that you had a couple of videos on, you know, the people on TikTok pretending like they have multiple personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Can you please talk about that some? I think it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not aware of any research that has looked into this topic, but in my cursory review of this topic, looking at a lot of different TikTokers claiming they have dissociative identity disorder. My uh, guess is that a good number of them do legit have dissociative identity disorder and are talking about it in a, you know, potentially helpful way to raise awareness. And really the majority, you think? No, no, I didn't say majority. Oh. I, did I say majority? I, I meant some. I don't know what proportion. And then there's some other unknown proportion of people that at least from the way they're talking, it's not consistent with a presentation of dissociative identity disorder. I don't know it because they could literally have an alter that likes to act like they have dissociative identity disorder and post on TikTok. So there's no way to tell from a TikTok video whether or not someone has or not ha not has it, but I can uh, definitely after, you know, cause I've treated a lot of people with it. I could de definitely tell when someone is presenting in a way that either they don't understand what it is and they, they're, they think they do. And so they're presenting in a way that's in accordance with what they think it is, which sort of lends itself to the possibility that they're, they don't really have it and, and they're, or they're confused or they're faking it or something. But my overall, um, attitude about this is that, because at first I'm like, oh, this is disgusting. But then as I thought about it, you know, I'm 51. So I've been around for a while and there was a time when it was, you know, mental health was so stigmatized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nobody, but nobody would advertise, even weirdo kids would advertise that they had issues like this. Mm -hmm. So we have as a field, my, you know, me and the thousands of others in my field have worked so hard to destigmatize mental health and and to raise awareness and we've succeeded so um, sufficiently that you have people that are actually being taken care of by society they go on social media having depression having 
complex PTSD, having dissociative identity disorder, and people actually will not shun them, but in fact, embrace them, which is good. Then you see people on the outside of that watching that happen, that good thing that's happening from all of our efforts of destigmatization and compassion. And they're like, I want that compassion. And so they jump on the bad wagon. Is it, I want that compassion or I want that attention? Uh, well, potato, potato, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I want validation. I want, I don't know, something. People don't do, people don't do that because their life is going well. You know Clearly. I mean? So there's something wrong and this is their weird solution, but um, they are observing something that is wonderful and good and, and saying, I don't have another way of getting that. And so I will fake something to get it. So that's how I see it. I don't see it as, you know, cause the way that people will frame it is like kids today, you know, and every generation always does that about kids today. There's always, you know, every generation thinks that the younger generation is a bunch of narcissistic idiots. I mean, even, mm during Julius Caesar's time 2000 years ago in, in Roman society, that that's what Julius Caesar was being accused of because he, no joke, had a toga that he wore a little loosely and he had tassels on his toga, not even joking as a senator. And they thought that they were too feminine and too weak and too uh, you know, narcissistic, too self-involved. They didn't understand you know, good old Roman traditional Roman values. And so every generation thinks the next generation is a bunch of idiots. So I, I think that um, there's that tendency. What I see is a bunch of people that are desperate for love and attention. And they're, you know, hope maybe they get a little bit of attention this way. And then that fulfills them a little bit. And then they can actually do something more functional. I don't know. It's hard to know exactly what's happening with those people. <laughs> I feel like I'm part of, I'm part, even though I'm, 33. I'm like kids these days. I'm unfortunately part of that group. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but I guess what is, that's what somebody also wanted me to ask, you know, just like the, the cost, um, benefit, you know, analysis of like all this, people are getting all this information. They're learning these things, but like, what is the harm or the cost to society of people who are, pretending like they have mental disorders that they don't have. Yeah, I suppose there is a cost, right? Because if you're not aware of what's happening, you could just blanketly call all TikTokers who claim they have dissociative identity disorder as stupid or trying to get attention when there's a bunch of people on that are there that are just trying to yeah. raise awareness and you know, there will be people on TikTok who have Tourette's, for example, mm -hmm. and they will make videos of themselves with their. Yeah. Tits. What's that main girl? Um, yeah. Baleen or something. I can't remember her name. Yeah. And the work that she's doing is tremendous to break stigma, to just say, hey, this is me. And and don't be afraid of it. You know, there, there's mm -hmm. nothing. Don't don't be so scared of it's it's just something that I deal with and. Uh, you know, it's under control and everything's fine. And so I, I consider that to be extremely valuable. I, I like I said, um, in the nineties, even in the aughts, I, I don't, I mean, we were still wrestling with Ellen being gay for crying out loud, you know, like our society has grown so much. So I, I, I'm really proud of people that are able to, to do that. And there's going to be some hop-ons, you know, mm -hmm. there's going to be some people that are going to want to, 
falsely jump on that bandwagon. That's, that's going to happen with any positive movement. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a big question, but overall, do you see like the social media movement as being more beneficial or harmful to society at large? I don't know. I mean, if you asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have said, well, obviously it's good because of all the Mm -hmm. information that can be shared and the democratization of society, the self-expression, the ability to propagate facts Mm -hmm. and information that was unavailable to people in the past. But, um, you know, of course, more recently, what we see is that we as humans have a tendency to fall for tricks and charismatic leaders and manipulation and all of our paranoias. I mean, the whole QAnon thing is essentially a a social media phenomenon that could not have existed without social media. That documentary was so good. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so does the good outweigh the bad? I, I don't know, honestly, at this point. I mean, it, it, it does like COVID was great for me because I was, I was working at home and my boss couldn't tell that I was not working and actually working on a podcast. So (laughs) and social media has been good for me that way. But you know what? Like before I started this, I was just a stalker. Like I was a social, I didn't post, you know, but I knew that I, I knew that I um, had to for this. And so I consider myself to be pretty thick skinned, but I was just wondering how I would handle haters. Um, I would say I've really lucked out. Like I, I feel like I should have gotten a lot more, but yeah, man, sometimes it just really, it gets, it gets under my skin. Um, oh, yeah, well, it's impossible to not. Uh, I certainly haven't found a way to not let it get under my skin. What is it? Is there something like, I think for me, what it is, if somebody says, uh, one thing that really bothered me was that I had somebody say that I was being really um, that I was not compassionate toward my guest. Mm. That was something that really rubbed me the wrong way. But like other things, I don't know, someone complaining about my cursing, I'm okay with that. But uh, have you noticed that there's what your particular triggers are? Uh, I mean, you know, it's been 14 years and I have, you know, there's a lot of comments on particularly on YouTube. So I, God, YouTube's nasty. It can be for sure. Um, Well, I mean, again, I could ramble for a long time because self-exploration and I've, I've, particularly after the trial, because the trial really, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial really uh, um, provoked a lot, a lot of um, difficulty among fans, I suppose, not just Anyway, point is, is it was it was really hard on me. It was really, really hard on me. It was actually a, a very difficult time emotionally for me. It was like the best time of my life. <laughs> I was so pumped to watch it all day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was enjoying making the content, and I was, and I, my channel was taking. Yeah, off. how much did it grow then? Well, I don't know how much it grew per, as much as I, um, just got a lot of views and yeah. us commensurate revenue from, yes. from YouTube. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I posted 65 hours of content wow. on the trial and had, 
you know, the most views I've had in a while, you know? Uh Um, But anyway, point is, is uh, it was a very interesting time in that way. But then of course, there's all these new people that don't really know me Mm -hmm. and um, were, you know, getting triggered by things I was saying, I suppose. And um, we're making assumptions about things. And then, you know, when you attract a larger crowd, the percentage of people who have massively distorted points of view increases or the, uh, the, the number of them increases, you know, say 0.001% of people have like a massively distorted point of view about things. Well, when you increase your viewership, that number of people could go from one to 300 and then you're getting all these messages. And even though I was getting all the support, it, it, I, I can't, it's hard for me to cope with. And so, what mm-hmm. I discovered for myself was that I don't mind people d- disagreeing. disagreeing. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't mind people even criticizing me. What will trigger me is the inability for me to properly respond because someone will just drop a comment in, right? Mm-hmm. Or even a long screed. There was Key- a whole keyboard subreddit. warriors. Yeah. And the, well, there's a whole subreddit actually that was dedicated to trying to like take you down. Yeah. To try to take my license and, and um, all these. Uh, bullies that were trying to get me. And, and so um, what I found at the end was I actually just did an an entire series of episodes, like maybe two or three, where I read all the comments, whether in emails, whether it was positive or negative. And, you know, there, there were some negative ones, some pretty Mm -hmm. mean negative ones in there. And afterwards it, I felt better emotionally because I found that in responding, you know, because I would record my response because if someone would say, you know, you are doing bad things because of X, Y, and Z. And I would say, okay, well, yeah, with X, I could see how that's possible, but I do these things to try to mitigate that risk. But yeah, I mean, if you think that I made that mistake, then I guess I made that mistake. And that really is, you know, hard for me to hear honestly but i hear you and but when someone just drops in a comment or even mm-hmm. an email it, you have no way to respond I, I don't know how to respond because like how do you fully respond in in text form really mm-hmm. so i f- after 14 years i think i finally figured out what it what it is about it it's just like the lack of dialogue because i specialize not only in trauma and but i also specialize in borderline my first you know major specialty was borderline and if you specialize in borderline, then you're accepting the fact that a good number of your clients are going to absolutely hate you at times. It's just a matter of course <laughs> and accuse you of some pretty severe things, but that's expected. That's part of the disorder. That's part of the recovery. It's part of the treatment. It's part of the corrective experience. And I'm dedicated and still am and feel very comfortable in that space. It's not without its distress. It, you know, it carries with it some distress, but it's worth it to me because I, I'm, I want, that's why I got in this business. I want to actually help people that need to be helped. And so um, it's tremendously meaningful to me to go through that with people. And when they're attacking me and they're, you know, they know me, right. They we've talked for three years. They, they have things that they've picked up about me and they, they can, they, they go for the jugular and they'll really, mm. you know, get me. And it, it, how do you handle that? This is, you're saying in, in a therapy session or yeah. clients that you have that attack you on YouTube. No, no. Clients don't attack me on YouTube. Okay. They, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and it's not all the time, but, and to be clear, you know, reason why people with borderline 
not all will attack their their therapist is because um, they're relationally traumatized by people uh, significantly growing up and they've never been given proper or secure attachment and security. And so, but they're desperate for it. And so when they find a therapist that they feel like that might work out, they idealize it first and they'll be like, Oh my God, you're the most wonderful person on the planet. I'm so glad I found you. You, you're the, you're perfect. I think about you all the time. You've helped me so much. And what's happening is, and that's all true, but what's happening is the individual is opening up for the first time and they feel fulfilled for a, you know, a a period Mm -hmm. of time that in a way that they've maybe never have, or very rarely have. And so they're very grateful for that. And they bond very quickly. And then though, at some point, something will happen where the the therapist will accidentally step on a landmine or, or, um, you know, one day the therapist is a little off or mm-hmm. a little tired, or the therapist says the wrong thing, or, or the client asks, I want to be able to see you outside a session. And the therapist has to, you know, draw a boundary around that. And it's hurtful to the client. And now the client is triggered because of, you might call it complex PTSD, you might call it a part of borderline. And they, all that trauma of being abandoned and rejected and harmed comes to the forefront and they have tremendous pain. Um, there's a, there's a little bit of a pain that is exaggerated times a hundred because of their traumas and it's not their fault, but it it's there and it's expected. And because they're so profoundly in pain and it's real pain, it's not just like some intellectual pain. It's the same pain receptors in the body and in the brain as when you're stabbed in the chest and the individual feels like you caused, you know, they, they look at me and they're like, you caused me to feel utterly horrible about myself for three weeks. And thus I'm angry at you. And so then they are angry at me and then they start to attack me because they, they want, they're trying to alert me that I hurt them and they, they, they want me to stop it. But I didn't actually hurt them. All I did was remind them of the boundary of therapy. You know, that's, that's not, it's not rejecting it really. Right. It's actually protective of their therapy, but it's hard for them to see in the moment. So, you know, they go on the attack and I, I know what's coming because I've been through it so many times, 25 years as a therapist specializing in this. And it can be really personal, you know, they can pick up on things, whether I disclose it or not, you know, they could, or they could take really good guesses, you know, even just saying you're a horrible therapist, you don't know what you're doing. And if they're very convinced of that, it can, if I'm not going through my own therapy or help or consultation mm-hmm. or that kind of, I'm not going through a good place in my own life or something, then I could, you know, potentially lose it. But when things are going well, I, I'm ready for it. I have the resolve. I I have the ego strength to endure it. it. It doesn't feel good. I don't like seeing people suffer. I don't have, obviously I don't like people attacking me, but I, it's part of the treatment. And I I'm saying to myself in my head, um, this is normal. They're having, they're transferring right now. Every borderline specialist goes through this. You've been through it many times. Trust the process. Everything's okay. Deep breathing. Um, and prove to them that you are safe. You know, that's kind of the main mantra that I have is like, 
everyone they've done this to has run away from them. And I will be that person that won't. But at what point does it cross the line? Because I would imagine sometimes it must. Like, if is there they, ever a point where it's like there's if, it's past the point of return? No. I mean, the only thing that would be, and this has never happened, is if they physically attacked me, mm-hmm. which has never happened. But if they, if it's verbal and, um, you know, they'll threaten to sue me. Um, they might even talk to a lawyer. Um, but that mm. it's not typical, but uh, it's common enough that it's par for the course. And what they're really looking for is, will you hear my anger and, and stay with me? You know, cause every kid wants that every mm-hmm. child wants that security, every, every, you know, good parenting. We don't usually think of this, I think, but a, a good component of parenting is that your kid at age two will throw a temper tantrum and you don't throw them away. Mm-hmm. They're there beginning, middle and end of their temper tantrum. Mm-hmm. And Allowing not, them to you, express you might, their emotions. You might be like, okay, when's this going to be over kid? But you don't, you don't yell at them. You don't abuse them. You don't give them up for adoption. Um, you're, you're there afterwards. Cause you're like, well, it's a two-year-old. They have a temper tantrum, big deal. Well, for these individuals, they never had that. They never had that security. And the ultimate test of a secure relationship is when someone throws an emotional temper tantrum and attacks you. And if you don't you can, leave. If you can prove that you're okay, mm. you know, cause every mm. kid, you know, imagine a parent that gets destroyed every time a parent, a kid has a, a little bit of a, of a meltdown. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that say about the worth of that child and of the security of the relationship? So I'm there to prove to them that they are worth it and that people can be trusted. And once they have that corrective experience repetitively for five, for five years, then they stop having to test people in the future. You know, they st- with their spouses, for example, they'll, they tend to have a reduction in that extreme reactivity to their spouses because they have an internalized sense that they're worth it and that other people can be trusted if they just give it a little bit of time and a little bit of grace. Mm. That is a beautiful note to end on. I could talk to you for hours. I'll definitely have to have you back. This really fed my soul. (laughs) We didn't even dive into everything I wanted to talk about, but I really, really, really appreciate um, your time. So other than your normal stuff that you cover, do you have anything coming up that's like a little bit out of the ordinary? I, yes. What am I doing? Well, I'm, you know, love is blind is Mm -hmm. having had a reunion or something. And so I'm going to be, I haven't got into that. uh, It's interesting. It's an interesting show. Yeah especially the first season, I thought. Um, I've also been covering Andrew Tate. Do you know this fella? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been critiquing his rhetoric, which... What a I douche. Find, Do you think it's fake? Uh, hard to tell, but he represents a, you know, millennia's old movement in our society. So even if he is faking it, he he's not unusual. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just saying it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gives me an opportunity to dismantle toxic masculinity in that way. And, and the premises of traditional gender and all that kind of silliness. But um, so, yeah. Have I'm you gonna, seen this yeah. whole, this whole drama that's going on with law tube and this guy, Chris boozy. Have you seen this? No. 
it's some guy on he's attacking all of them he's like really mm-hmm. been going after like nate the lawyer hardcore For really what? saying some horrible stuff i don't know i think that it's kind of a long story but he was really put some d- defaming tweets out about nate and was like making a comment about how uh nate should be so ashamed of his, himself because his parents are crackheads <laughs> and people listen to that stuff yeah but they're not i mean law two is like raking and they, they're calling it boozy bucks it's this guy he has a company called bot sentinel I, I think it's just like a you know he's just no bueno but i've been i love it i love all that. i'm an, i'm i'm an adult child i love l- let me watch the drama all day long <laughs> uh, i get stressed out with stuff i bet like you that. do i don't have to talk about it though you know, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't mind hearing about it. I just it, observe. I get, <laughs> I, I have to admit, like when you talk about someone going after a content provider, it reminds me of the people who went after me during the trial. And how yeah, I, I'm sure that was traumatic. It wasn't easy. Yeah. I got through it and I, I feel like the dust is mostly settled. Were you but, surprised? At, I mean, I'm assuming you watched like every damn minute of that trial, right? I did. I did. Were you surprised at how um misrepresented it was like by by some media yeah yeah i mean you looked it, at some of the headlines i mean i would talk to friends and it's like i would look at a headline and it, 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 complete opposite from reality yeah yeah i mean i'm not surprised no i mean i was yeah. surprised but then i was like well yeah that yeah don't even get me started on <laughs> that whole topic um because you know from what I understand, because yeah, I would talk with friends who didn't watch the trial and had only seen the headlines. And when I would tell them what actually happened in the trial, they would say, I mean, so there'd be different reactions. There'd be some people would be like, huh, wow, that's not what's being reported. I didn't realize all this. But then there's another section of people would be like, you're making it up or, or that I'm biased, you know, Mm. that I, I, I'm, I'm somehow, yeah. And, and I thought, because there, I say, okay, I feel like I have to cover this a little Please. bit. So it's, I'd love talking about this shit. For centuries, we've been oppressing women in a variety of ways. Literally, they couldn't vote. They had no rights. Men could do whatever they want to, to them, with them, of them. Uh, there are obviously remnants of that still in our society today in 2022. When we look around the world there are countries that are you know iran for example there you know there's societies that are on according to their laws are absolutely oppressive of women mm-hmm. uh, i don't know the specific things in iran but the point is is that we have it's a happening. huge problem <laughs> and as an outgrowth of that there's a a long-standing fact that women are sexually assaulted and can do nothing about it um and there's all these institutions in place and there's all these attitudes in place. Uh, plenty of women will uphold these attitudes because they're indoctrinated in this thing of just like, mm-hmm. well, she she must have asked for it. She must, you know, what was she dressed mm-hmm. it as? It's her fault. She's a slut, um, whatever. And so it's a, it's a pervasive cultural institution that spans most, if not all cultures around the world and has been going on for literally thousands of years. So we have a problem. And then we have the Me Too movement, which which was a wonderful thing. And it was a women's movement to push back on a component of that thousands of year long uh, uh, crime and mm-hmm. atrocity against women. Uh, 
And it was just the beginning, you know, it's because it was just a few people really that came forward and compared to all the people who have been assaulted, it helped people to come forward, but we're nowhere near like even the majority of victims coming forward. Um, but it was a good thing. However, one of the simplistic lessons learned through that movement was hashtag believe all women, mm -hmm. which is absurd. <laughs> We've <laughs> known <agree>. research <laughs> has known and it's hard to lock down, but according to research, the reports that are made to the police, about five, 10% have been found to be false. And and, th and those are just the ones that are uh, reported. Found out, yeah. Uh, what about all the all the reports that are just people just make on Twitter or when they're talking mm -hmm. to their friends? Like Now, it's far more likely that when someone comes forward that it's the truth, but you can't just believe everyone's allegation. Now, if 35 women come forward against, uh, you know, against Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby and all their stories sound the same, and they've been saying these stories for a long time, and there's a lot of corroborating evidence, then it'd be really weird to not believe that. Right. Mm -hmm. Even without a conviction in court. Um, but if one woman comes forward, i.e. Amber Heard, and makes an allegation, uh, it, you're just supposed to believe that without questioning it or without waiting to see. Also, the other component of this is that um, people didn't include men in there. You know, they didn't mm -hmm. say believe all victims. They mm -hmm. said believe all women. Mm -hmm. We've known as a fact, and it's not hard for people to comprehend this, that men are also assaulted to a lesser rate, but still alarmingly high when you really look at the research. And men are even less likely to be believed. They're, they're even less likely to know that they were victimized. They don't even know that they were a victim because we don't allow for the possibility of men being victims. So it wasn't hashtag believe all victims or be highly receptive to victims' allegations, you know? It wasn't that. It was hashtag believe all women. And so when you apply that to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial and you don't understand things and, frankly, you have a simplistic idea of how the world works, then you believe Amber Heard and you think Johnny Depp is a complete narcissistic, psychopathic, abusive, <laughs> horrible human being. And then when you watch the trial and you're like, well, hard to say, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of details here that you have to sift through. And then if you're a HuffPo writer or a mm -hmm. New York Times writer, you're not appealing to the you're not appealing to you and me who are watching the trial. They're appealing to the people who aren't watching the trial. And so they have to toe the line. You know, they these you know these um journalists could get canceled if they write the wrong headline right i know heaven forbid they get canceled for lying <laughs> right yeah, exactly <laughs> or just bad reporting so so there was this huge divide between the journalists that were appealing to the masses that knew nothing mm -hmm. about the trial really and the youtubers who were commenting on the ground about what was actually happening and frankly, most of them were women who were saying that Amber Heard has a very dubious account. You know, mm -hmm. that, that was what I was seeing. It was mm -hmm. a lot of women 
who were obviously aware of sexism saying Amber Heard's her story just there's parts of it that don't add up and yet you step outside that world that knows the situation is complete opposite world right where everyone's just like well obviously Johnny Depp is a horrific human being and maybe he is but uh you know anyway I'm rambling no, I love it. I didn't want to. I, I, I assumed that you were sick of talking about this. So I wasn't going to ask Clearly you questions, not. <laughs> but you really just made my day. I'm, so, I'm loving this. <laughs> yeah, I'm clearly not done talking about it. Nothing will ever top that. I'm sorry. Yeah. That yeah. was, I mean, I don't know. I, I was too young for the OJ, but like, how would you compare? Well, I guess you, was that live streamed? OJ? It was, right? Yeah, it was on. Yeah. T- how would you TV. compare the two? I mean, I just feel like, the depth that it had everything it had comedy it it had so much yeah i mean it was well the oj trial was a sensation i think they're equal honestly i think they're equal in um i don't know it's newsworthiness or something the difference is is that the first one was on live cable and Mm -hmm. this one was on live youtube Mm -hmm. and the difference is like back in the day with OJ, you wouldn't get the commentary. You wouldn't get the commentary. You would just be left with talking to the person you're sitting on the couch with. But with this trial, it was like, it was endless commentary and mm-hmm. endless discussion. It's all I did all damn day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was, um, you know, people would just be watching it live on YouTube and, you know, commenting as it's happening. Right. Like, that really added a depth of of uh, bingeability that was not present with the OJ trial. Oh my god! I mean, I had a little bit of an emotional hangover when it ended. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. I loved it. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I could talk about this forever, but we'll have to have you back on. I really enjoyed chatting with you. So th- thank yeah, you, and everyone, follow you um, on. I'll put all your shit in the show notes. YouTube uh, podcast. Instagram, Twitter, all the things. Okay? Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I know you heard something that can help you on your own journey, and you are very welcome for that. <laughs> oh, thanks again to Dr. Kirk. Honda. Go check out the show notes for links to his YouTube and his podcast and all of his things. I really, really, really loved that conversation. Let me know y'all's thoughts. Um, I definitely want to have him back on. There's so many different things. And for y'all that like reality TV or if you're into like, he has a ton of 90 day fiance content on his YouTube channel. So I know that there are some reality TV whores out there like me. Go check out his his channel. Um, what else? I don't have anything. I am gonna go make some food. I just have some vegetables roasted in the oven. I went to the. It, it's so ridiculous here. Like, it's not really gonna be a hurricane. It'll just be like a bad storm. But everyone goes to the store as if, you know, a Category Five hurricane's about to <laughs> about to hit us. Um. Like me, right? I I went to the store. Like a Category 5 hurricane was going to hit us like everybody else does. So I'm ridiculous too. Um, 
But yes, I just roasted some garlic and some veggies and some corn. And I'm going to make some pasta, which means I'm going to put a shitload of cheese in it. So looking forward to that. And then I'm going to watch a little TV. Right? Actually, I'm going to have to edit, edit this and then I'll watch a little TV. Um, join the damn Patreon. Again, if you are listening to the very end of the episode and you still have not joined the Patreon, what the hell? Can you please do it? Thank you. And I will see you guys next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super bono. Super excited. Y'all to hear it. It's going to be a good week. I promise. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.